0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 294. There's a tidal wave coming, what you gonna do?
1: Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey
0: everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Got another good one today for you. I was looking forward to this interview. I look forward to all the interviews, but this one in particular, it's with Steve Keen. It may be surprising to some of you. I was recently on his podcast, well, it's called Steve Keenan Friends, and it was an MNT home game, put it that way, and I was the visiting team, and the crowd was not necessarily on my side. One of them at one point said something like, kudos to Bob or much respect to Bob for having the guts to come on this show. And Steve didn't say that. I'm saying the the people in the the comments who are watching it live. So anyway, I will put a link to that. If you didn't catch it, I posted it on my YouTube channel, but in case some of you missed it, I'll post it. But in any event, in case you don't know who he is, Steve Keen is an iconoclast. I think that's a word I want to use. He's an economist who has been very critical of the mainstream. And In fact, he has a book called Debunking Economics that uh, Gene Callahan and I actually reviewed way back in the day when it came out. It's under a paywall. I can give you the link in the show notes page, folks, but it's it's, you know... I guess if you're at the library, maybe you can get at it without having to pay. But um, in any event, and our conclusion was it's very clever. He this guy keen that we, you know, we didn't know personally at the time, he has you know, raised some serious objections. We don't agree as Austrians necessarily with his policy prescriptions, but you know, this is worth taking seriously. And we had some quibbles. And I even noticed at the time, just to show why I like Steve, is he's a an authentic thinker, okay, that he and I disagree strongly on a lot of stuff. But he's trying to be honest about it. And in fact, when I went and reread the review that Gene and I did, you know, in the, the main text, we said something like, Keen, when he talks about Austrian economics, sometimes gets things a little bit off. And he says this, for example, about their business cycle theory. But actually, in reality, he reversed the causality in the Austrian claim. And then I in parentheses, which he admitted or something like that. And I was like, what, what does that mean? And I looked at the footnote and it said personal email correspondence. And so I had just forgotten because it's been so long, but apparently... I emailed Steve back then to say, hey, I think you misstated what the Austrian position is on this, and he must have said, oh, okay, sorry. So anyway, that was kind of what I knew of him. He has been on Lex Friedman's show. Um, If you see him on Twitter, Steve will often tweet out like little snippets from his uh, appearance there, and like I said, he's a big guy in the MMT world. So let me just read from his official bio, and then we'll jump into the interview here. So this is from the Institute for New Economic Thinking and their entry on Steve Keen. Steve Keen was one of the handful of economists to realize that a serious economic crisis was imminent and to publicly warn of it from as early as December 2005. And it gives a link. This and his pioneering work on modeling debt deflation resulted in him winning the Revere Award from the Real World Economics Review for being the economist whose work is most likely to prevent a future financial crisis. He maintains a highly influential blog on economics and his book Debunking Economics is a classic exposition of why neoclassical economic theory is not only wrong, but more of a threat to the survival of capitalism than any number of left-wing revolutionaries. Steve is associate professor of economics and finance at the University of Western Sydney and author of the popular book, Debunking Economics. He has over 70 academic publications on topics as diverse as financial instability, the money creation process, mathematical flaws, in the conventional model of supply and demand, flaws in Marxian economics, the application of physics to economics, Islamic finance, and the role of chaos and complexity theory in economics. Okay, so just to give you one more little push on the stuff we get into in here, Steve and I both... I have an affinity for physics and what's chaos theory, but not in the sun. If you guys know my political libertarian stuff, I'm, I'm talking like mathematical chaos theory and just modeling financial instability, stuff like that. So we largely in this discussion focus on where we agree, but we do get into some tension. And so anyway, I think you'll enjoy this. My discussion with Steve Keen. Steve, welcome to the Bob Murphy show. Good to be
1: here, Bob. It was nice to follow up on our chat on my show about a week or two ago.
0: Yes, it was indeed. And I I don't know if I'm go- going wobbly, but I'm having more intera- friendly interactions with MT-friendly people. And I, I want to continue these discussions because I think a lot of it is we're coming to these issues with different frameworks. And the point of me having you here, I say this on the front end whenever I have somebody I'm not, we're not debating. I want my listeners to understand how you think about stuff. Yeah, sure. So maybe what we should start with is the debunking economics. So you wrote that book and then Gene Callahan and I had a sympathetic but not in full agreement review of that a long time ago at this point. Yeah. So maybe mm-hmm. want to start there, just explain like what led you to write that book.
1: I've been a critic of mainstream economics, meaning specifically neoclassical economics, of course for fifty years. I I was a typical first year student at university in nineteen seventy-one and I basically accepted the whole thing about supply and demand analysis and equilibrium and profit maximization, blah, blah, blah. And then in the very first the second term of the three term system that I went through as a undergraduate. And in the second term we had a new lecturer called Frank Stillwell, who's uh did his PhD at Manchester University in the UK came out to Australia and took over the micro course. The the, the way it was taught at Sydney University in 71 was first year was all micro, second year was all macro, and third year was all national. Quite a weird Mm -hmm. arrangement. And there were 27 lectures. We had 27 one-hour lectures on micro, and then we had, I think, 18 were done on mathematical methods for economists and so on. And at the same time, give me a bit more background. I was doing pure mathematics, pure and applied mathematics at the same time. I didn't do an economics degree, I did an arts law degree. With the arts part of it, I could use whatever I like, and I like mathematics. So I did economics, mathematics, and psychology in my first year. And be learning mathematics from one of the best pure mathematicians I've ever known. A crazy guy called Professor Williams, I can't think of his first name, but he taught like a school teacher, mm-hmm. in that he, he made a noise; he was thrown out of the lecture theatre in front of eight hundred students. Mm-hmm. But it was just brilliant mathematics. So I was learning high level mathematics. While being taught crappy mathematics by economists. And then in the middle of the second term with this new lecturer, Frank taught us the, what's called the theory of the second best. I presume you're aware of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If the listeners aren't, it's, yeah, why don't you elaborate? Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 I think it won a Nobel Prize for one of the originators of the theory. And that said that what you said, what if you're at two steps from Nirvana? Nirvana is perfect competition. No trade unions, no, employer concentration at all. And if you're one step away, then the standard argument is if you abolish the monopoly on one side or the other, then you make things better. You push people towards a social optimum. But there's, so what if you're two steps away? What if you have trade unions, but you also have employer associations in negotiating over wages? Then what do you get? If you, rather than getting the the demand, the, the price side of things for the a demand for labor being the marginal product of labor, You get uh, a marginal revenue product, which is lower. Uh, You have a marginal supply product on the other side. And if you have both the trade unions and the employers negotiating over the wage, then there'll be a bargaining power to get you between the maximum and the minimum level. If you abolish one or the other, you end up in the the side where it's much worse off or a union's work is much worse off. So making one step towards the... Getting rid of one or the other market distortion made the outcome socially worse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You had a definite fall in social welfare. And I remember sitting there thinking, holy shit, I've just, I've swallowed the whole textbook argument up to this point. And suddenly bringing in the realistic point that there are trade unions and there are employer associations as well, abolishing one or the other will make it worse off. And the only way you can ensure to get to Nirvana is to abolish both simultaneously. That's learning. I thought, this is some, there's something really wrong with the theory here. Mm -hmm. And my reaction was to think, I looked in the textbook and I would, we actually were using Samuelson's textbook at the time. And if you, the people who don't know, I imagine most of your listeners do know. Samuelson was the person who really developed neoclassical economics. He, He taught concepts from engineering. He gave us the idea of revealed preference for I think actually gave us indifference curves, and actually Edgeworth gave us indifference curves. But Samuelson said, I can prove that they exist by looking at what you actually consume, and then I can reveal preference and find your indifference curves for you. All the mathematization that was done of of the original neoclassical economics from the 1870s into mathematical form was done by Samuelson. Yeah, there's like
0: at least five different areas where he's got seminal papers from whatever the 40s to the 60s. Just oh yeah, classic paper in this literature is Samuelson 53. Yeah,
1: so his his PhD thesis was published as Foundations of Economic Analysis early in the post-war period, I think, and that became his textbook, and that Mm. that became anyway. So I looked through it, and there was nothing about the theory of the second best in his textbook. So I trotted down to the library. This is 1971. And of course it's well before the internet. And the only bound volumes on the the newest bound volume I could find. Well look at the economic journal. Surely it's the economic journal, that's got to be the so I got a copy of the economic journal, and there's the paper in the nineteen sixty six edition was the last one that was bound. And there is a paper by Paul Samuelson called A Summing Up. Well so I'll read it. I certainly had the mathematics to handle the argument. And I then got exposed to the capital controversies. And in the summing up, for those who don't know, and by the way, those who don't know include Paul f***ing Krugman, thinks that the neoclassicals won the Cambridge controversy. And again, for those who don't know, the Cambridge controversy was a dispute over the theory of the distribution of income, from fundamentally, between Cambridge, UK, which was against the neoclassical model of the marginal productivity theory, and Cambridge, USA, which was in favour, which, of course, is where Samuelson was. So, there's a long story behind it, and I'm happy to give the backstory. People need to know it. But Samuelson conceded defeat. The
0: yeah, sp- why don't we, since you brought it up, because I, I, folks, so this is bobmurphyshow.com/slash 294. We'll give links. So, as yeah, Steve, like my dissertations on capital interest theory. So, yeah. as an Austrian,
1: <clears throat> yeah. I've
0: done a lot, and, and i folks I'll link to some, like a Mises.org. But yeah, so what Samuelson was really good at is he would read a literature weigh in on it and he'd come up with a numerical example that was very clever and would illustrate the issues involved so that everybody helping frame what the debate is so people when they're fighting not that mm. one side would totally agree that oh yeah but it would help clarify and it was i think it was mark blog and his history of economic thoughts that it was unconditional surrender really and, and, well. and so then later so folks what steve's talking about now is later when thomas piketty's book came out. It re- rekindled interest in these old capital controversy that the economists knew, oh, yeah, something happened. And the reason they call it Cambridge was, was Cambridge, U.K. versus Cambridge in the U.S., Yeah, um, arguing about it and over the distribution of income. And is it true that do capitalists could get the, the marginal product of something or is mm-hmm. it different, that kind of deal? And yeah, Samuelson just threw in the towel and then made like more of an empirical argument that you're so right Theoretically, these Petrophians yeah. are correct. The Joan Robinson, all these people, they're right. The way we try to make interest look analogous to uh, wages is illegitimate. Yeah. And, but empirically, we don't think it's that big of a deal. What our models are okay. That was how we are. And Krugman, when Piketty came out and people w- said, don't bother going and reading this stuff. It's not, there's nothing there. And Kr- it, it's just. Uh, shocking. It is.
1: It's it, okay, This is one thing I, I have to say, by the way, Bob, in our conversation on my show, I really respected the extent to which you're an intellectual first, and an Austrian second, oh. <laughs> in, in the sense that, you get know, ideological types, and but as soon as you try to bring up any criticism, bang, they're into the market, as always best attitude. You've got the attitude of the scholar, and I appreciate that. So a bit of background for people about Samuelson, but the reason he did concede, I think, I read the whole literature after I read that one paper, is that I think it was Garen who criticised Samuelson's idea of of isoquants, which is the production equivalent of the indifference curve, supposed to show, if we we, we teach students this idea of an isoquant, you've got a production function that gives you a smooth substitution between capital and labour, and that is the idea out of which you derive the supply curve as the other side of the demand curve. And what happening says, that we, we know that this is just a parable, He actually called it a parable, and said that that, that uh, we know that there are actually a whole lot of technologies, each with a fixed ratio of capital to labor. And what we call the indifference curve is just the envelope you can get by taking each of these technologies. So there's a technology with a large amount of – which way is my hand going? I don't know you the right way. <laughs> I'm saying – I understand what yeah. you're asking. If you, if you imagine just drawing draw your axes and have a capital on the vertical – or labour on the vertical axis and capital on the horizontal. And then you've got a smooth curve showing a constant level of production for a range of uh, levels of capital to labour, and so that you can have a high level of capital on the vertical, let's say, labour on the horizontal, so highly capital-intensive technology, or you can have a a very labour-intensive technology with a small amount of capital, and that's the curve that you get in the textbook. And Samuelson, in this fight with a... Cambridge tried to be clever, and this is always dangerous for Samuelson. So he's clever and said, we know that's not real. We know that what we've actually got is a range of technology where each one has got a fixed ratio of capital to labour. So if you draw a straight, you draw a straight line then between capital and labor, and that's one high high capital technology is going to be very vertical line. And then you have a low capital intensity, it's going to be a much flatter line. And then if you draw an envelope of all these, you get the thing we teach our students. I think it was Garinjani who showed that envelope only involves straight lines to form it if you have constant capital-labor ratios in all industries, which is mm-hmm. precisely the flaw that affects Marx's theory of labor theory of value. If you in- instead have varying amounts of capital-labor, you don't get straight lines; you get curves. And out of that, you get what's called the reswitching debate. Now, I think that shocked Samuelson so much; his clever thing came back and blew his own legs away. He threw a hand grenade and blew up his own feet. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. these guys know what they're talking about. And it was really was probably the most modest document I've ever read by Samuelson, the meaning he got things wrong. Yeah. There's a strong, and he finished up with a line saying, if all this, I think I've been remembering it roughly. If all this causes troubles for believers in the neoclassical paradigm or religion, we must realize that as scholars, we are not born to live an easy life. We must appraise, appraise and reflect the facts of life. Now, I thought, great, that's a beautiful statement. Where do I find any equivalent of that in his textbook? And yeah. I didn't, okay? And then the, the interesting thing was he did actually have a large section on Marx after that. At some point, he had much more sensible analysis of Marx than he had just rather than dismissing Marx that he did in previous editions. But it was still dishonest because, yeah, you get the, the marginal productivity theory is still coming out. And like in the empirical, I can blow that out of the water as well by looking at the role of energy and production, which I'm happy to talk about later. So I just think I'm being con. I'm not being taught the serious analysis here. And I can no longer trust the textbooks, definitely. If I'm going to do any work at all, I've got to go back and read the journals. And the more I read the journals, the more I found an enormous contradiction to what had been taught in the textbook. And one of the most important there was the whole idea of the supply curve with rising marginal cost. Because when you look at the empirical literature, and there's an enormous empirical literature going back to the uh, 1930s of economists going and asking businessmen or going to factories and doing a bit of field work and finding that firms do not have rising marginal cost. They have a constant or falling marginal cost. And then the area of finance, if you're when I read the area of capital asset pricing model, one of the key assumptions of the capital asset pricing model is that investors agree on all stocks. On the expected returns and the volatility of those returns, and that was justified by hand waving back to Milton Friedman's theory of, of methodology, mm-hmm. and it was nonsense. And that, if you look at in two thousand and four, some years after I wrote the first edition of debunking economics, Thamer and French came out and said it's entirely contradicted by the data, and we shouldn't be using capital asset pricing model. What are we using today? The capital asset pricing model. So I just found an incredible level of mendacity and. Dishonesty in the textbooks. And that's why I wrote debunking economics because students, we, if you're sitting through it as a student learning the stuff and you got a bit of, oh, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Don't worry. Later assumptions will take away this. Mm. Well, you look at the later assumptions, they're, they're even more lunatic than the, the foundation stuff they yeah. get to in the first year. So I thought I had to go through 30 years, maybe 20 years of learning all this stuff. And I wanted to provide something for people who are being snowed by economists. Because you're very different, and I've got to acknowledge that, but there's some bloke I correspond with on, no, on Twitter. I've forgotten his name. <laughs> okay, good, he's probably my buddy, and so then I would be in an awkward spot. So <laughs> <laughs> Somebody worked for the Adam Smiths, and he just drew this supply and demand stuff. If only people learned this stuff, it would all be okay. The whole analysis is just moribund, and we yeah. just need something which is far more realistic, and that's why I wrote debunking economics.
0: That's interesting. And actually, if he's with the Adam Smith Institute, maybe he's not my buddy. But I have a very tight group of very high purity tests. Let me mention—I'm going to forget the same. You said a lot there again. We folks, we could Steve and I could talk for six hours. What we need to do is build AI models of us and then have them just talk about <laughs> stuff, and then we'll go through and make sure. Yep, I approve of that, and then be a lot more efficient. But tell me if you've heard of this, Steve. Okay, so there's again, folks. You can't—I can't emphasize enough samuelson was a productive genius in what he was doing just like darth vader built a nice empire literally right so that it doesn't it's not an endorsement of what he did with his powers but samuelson was an impressive human yeah. and one of the literatures that he had seminal contributions in was like expected utility theory and in the finance literature so there's this thing called the kelly Cri- i'm not talking to you Steve. The kelly criterion know. and things no. like that in terms of if you're playing an uncertain game and you know what your edge is how much of your bankroll do you wager and there's so there's various things and so this kelly criterion is a benchmark that a lot of like financial advisor managers and stuff use portfolio managers but the economists would often argue that no it's, so it's like maximizing the geometric mean of your expected returns things like that. and so samuelson was coming down the side of saying no in general your preferences could be such that wouldn't be the optimal strategy. And he would argue with finance types who kept saying, no, this is unambiguously. I don't care what your trade-offs are, your risk appetite. And Samuelson just coming back saying, no. Nope. And in one of his papers, Samuelson wrote it, and it was all one-syllable words until the end. Are you familiar, <laughs> are you familiar with this paper, Steve? No, I don't. That's okay. actually one that So he's doing program. it real yeah. simply like big loss, bad. But, or maybe it's two syllables because, like, yeah, some yeah, one syllable's yeah. Really too hard of a constraint, but it, it's some. He constrains himself to just speak into words of no more than X syllables, and X I, is a small. I matter. think I had so read it some time ago. So, here's what's funny though. So, he's doing it, and I'm reading it, and I'm reading books about like financial markets and Mandelbrot and blah blah blah, like m- markets be misbehaving and things. And they're so they cover this stuff, and so that's the thing, like what that's what. And one of the guys that was debating samuelson in the journals at the time said that was a very patronizing thing like samuelson talking to us like we're six like that was the whole point yeah. of folks is samuelson was like i'm getting exasperated talking to these morons here let me speak in three two syllable words so you can understand uh-huh. the words come and what's hilarious is he was bluffing i posted that on my blog that yeah. episode and one of my readers said what are you talking about on page one of the article there's three words that have more syllables than what he claimed And he was correct. (laughs) So the thing is, I think Samuelson claimed, I just put my arguments in words with no more than – and nobody actually checked to make sure he was bluffing and got that published. And until a reader on my blog pointed that out, I had been walking around thinking Samuelson accomplished that. So that's just
1: hilarious to me. For me, I actually, Samuelson came to lecture at Sydney University in 1973, and he didn't come to lecture at Sydney University in 1973. He came out to promote his textbook. (laughs) <laughs> and and then the uh, academics at the university asked him to come and give a lecture. they were using his textbook. So he thought, okay, I'll go along and give a seminar. And as an honours, when well, I'd been an honours student, I dropped out after I topped the course in second year. I hung on. I was so sick of it by the end of the first term that I just I wanted to continue. The reason I stuck with the honours course at that stage was because it was half the course of mathematics and I knew a little bit stats. So I ended up topping the course and then I dropped out, which annoyed them no end. But anyway... I've been leading a re- revolt against the teaching of economics at the university, and one of my crazy friends at the time, a guy called Richard Fields, quite a character, found out somehow, from, I think the staff told him, that Samuelson was giving a seminar. And we thought, well, this, we're going to force him to teach to the entire student body. So we simply put a poster saying, Samuelson will lecture in Merryweather 1 on this day, blah, blah, blah. And we shamed him, and he basically walked into the Lecture theater. So there are about 200 students, I think, and all the conservative staff sat down in the front. Samuelson walked in and gave a brilliant lecture saying, if my grandmother asked me, what's his general equilibrium? This is what I teach. And then filled the And I was sitting with the mathematics lecturer, a guy called Tony Phipps, a very, very nice bloke. We're very close friends all the way through. And we were following the mathematics. And at one point, uh, something went up on board and I, we both said, shouldn't that be a plus? He said, yeah, but it's Samuelson. He must know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Kept on going for a few more lines. And then he said to the academics on the front, Oh, I made a mistake up, up there. You should have corrected me. <laughs> Smart. A- so anyway, that's, that has been my picture. And he was a very brainy, highly intelligent man, definitely genius category. And he constructed the whole of neoclassical theory. And then he found holes in it and he ran away from the holes. The whole was particularly the capital controversy. But there's one other you might not be aware of, and I'm going to read this to you. Okay. Have you heard of these paper called social indifference curves? I don't think so. 19, 1956. It's quite old. Mm. Have you heard of Gorman's paper with the similar title? You, I've got forgotten Gorman's paper. Anyways, his equivalent to a paper in 1953 by Gorman, uh, which showed that you cannot aggregate individual demand curves to get a market demand curve. Okay? And he and this is Samuelson at one point in that paper saying that what defense can we make when challenging the use of community and difference goes for a country or group of individuals? And he said, we may claim we've got a Rebels alone and Crusoe alone and you have a single person and that's not realistic. In order to give the appearance of realism, we may claim that a country is inhabited by a number of identical individuals with identical tastes. They must also have identical initial endowments if this artifice is to work. So it doesn't work mm-hmm. at all. As he finally says, the common sense of this impossibility theorem is easy to grasp. Allocating the same totals differently among people must generally change the resulting equilibrium price ratio. This is the punchline. One of the first punchlines is this is the punchline that's legal. The one that goes below the belt comes up next. The only exception is it would are identical, not only for all men, but also for all men when they are rich or poor. Now, that's actually a proof by contradiction that you can't derive a market demand curve that's what mm-hmm. it amounts to it. but he then goes through the most in- inane level of logic to say what about if we aggregate a family and we can assume that a ha- family is a happy family that allocates goods bet- between income between everybody before trade occurs so that everybody the ethical worth of everybody's is always equalized and then it, you're not going to believe the next one but here we go this is the quote since blood is thicker than water, the preferences of different members are interrelated. What we will call the consensus or social welfare function, the family acts as if it was maximizing their joint welfare function. Now, we get the, I'm coming up to the punchline shortly. I hope I've got it highlighted properly. If within the family we can assume to do blah blah blah, then he said the same argument will apply to all of society if optimal reallocations of income can be assumed can keep the ethical worth of each person's marginal dollar equal. In other words, let's assume there's a benevolent dictator mm-hmm. at the top of capitalism that reallocates income so everybody's happy with the reallocation and then trades take place, we'll have a down the sleeping market demand curve. That <laughs> is sick. That yeah. is intellectually sick. I think I have, I didn't recognize the
0: title, but when you were walking through it, I, I remember because I know in macro at one point, somebody asked, because we were using re- representative agent models, and yeah. somebody asked, "Has anyone ever justified that?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, go read such and such." And you looked at the conditions under which that would make sense, and it was like they were such ridiculously stringent conditions. It was like that's never going to be true. And yet exactly. they felt better about you because the math is so much easier to use. Assume there's one agent who lives forever, and then let's figure out what the and one good,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one good. And so and this to me, and that's why I'm I'm not a I'll never be an Austrian economist. I, I have respect for Austrians because they break away from the concept of equilibrium, which is mm-hmm. the, I believe that's where it's actually where the economics Australia in general. So you're better than neoclassicals because you've abandoned the concept of equilibrium. Not abandon. I think it's, you still want, you want it to be nearby, but not actually right, right. on it. So that is at least as a step in realism. Of course, there's more work about expectations and uncertainty, genuine expectation, not so-called rational expectations. I've got that respect for the Austrian, and a couple of people like Steindl and, and Schumpeter came out of that tradition as well, and I have enormous respect for them. But you simply can't aggregate. Mm-hmm. If you start from a subjective theory of value, then you can't aggregate. And this, in its own way, is the opposite end of the problem that Marx has got themselves into by arguing for in terms of the labor theory of value, where they couldn't aggregate either without assuming that capital labor ratios were constant across all industries. It's Can trying, I stop you, Steve, just
0: you, once? Yeah. You, to cl- you, you did say it, but just to make sure some listeners didn't get totally lost. When you were saying you can't aggregate to come up with a market demand, I think some people be like, what do you mean? Don't you just sum across, like for every hypothetical, price?" you mean to make it a nice downward, like a well-behaved? Yeah, thing? what they call well-behaved. So, like,
1: the, the background there is that if you read a textbook like man <laughs> and I'd prefer, you're better off reading Alice in Wonderland because at least it's supposed to be entertaining. The whole body of ranger body fairy stories and fairy firm. <laughs> I think Th- 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 Thirsty Thelma's shop and Big Bob's Bagel bin, you might have a, another a crazy crap like that I've made-up things all the way through. But he, when he talks about demand, he says, so-and-so has a demand for three ice cream cones at this price and somebody else has four, so the market demand is seven. Totally childish, totally simplistic. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to the foundation which Samuelson himself laid of having people maximising the utility given a budget constraint with preferences indicated by indifference curves, one part of driving an individual demand curve there. Is that you can, let's say you've got bananas on the vertical and biscuits on the horizontal. Okay? Mm-hmm. So when you're going to change the price of biscuits, you change the intercept given a budget line along the, the you know, the biscuit line, but the bananas remain constant because we're assuming for a single individual, we change the price of biscuits. We're not going to change your income. We're not changing the price of bananas either. Therefore, that point remains fixed mm-hmm. and therefore we just rotate and then the other point of rotation, we go to work out the demand curve. There's another set, complicated set called a and compensated demand curve that we don't need to go into here, but that combination means you can prove that the individual obeys the law of uh, the price, the increase the price, increase demand, proven because that's actually the slope of the indifference curve now. Now, when you go to a market, you can't have just one individual, okay? Because if you were going to look at the market for biscuits in America, there's 350 million consumers. Some of those consumers are going to be involved in the production of biscuits. So, therefore, when you change the price of biscuits, you change the income mm-hmm. of biscuit and you change the income of everybody else as well, because they've got to buy biscuits and et cetera, et cetera. So, the point is no longer fixed, it moves.
0: Okay. And,
1: therefore, as it moves, each time you do it, you are changing, you change the distribution of income, you change rel- relative prices as well. The, the point of tangency is going to continue swaddling all over the place, because rather than having a curve doing this, you've got a curve doing this all the time. Mathematically, it's restricted to any shape that can be covered by a polynomial. So that's any, any line, any sh- shape you can draw by putting a finger on the page, moving forward, never going up to intersect with yourself and, and never getting two values of quantity for one value of price. It's a good thing. even the curve is inverted. is supposed to be, that's what's called what the inverse demand function. So that means there's no guarantee of being able to drive a market demand curve. That has any of the properties that you'll find in all of the textbooks. Mm-hmm. And that is why I find it such a mendacious discipline. They should have said, and this is with the reaction that Alan Kerman had to the, it's now known as the Sonnenschein mantle to birth theorem. But as I said, you can find it being proven by Gorman in 53 and Samuelson in 56 as well, that you cannot derive a market demand curve unless you assume all consumers are the same and all goods are the same which is exactly the same ridiculous dilemma that Kyle Bosch the labor theory of value. The sensible reaction is the one that Alan Kerman said that given this rule, we will we may have to abandon the idea of starting at the isolated individual. We would have to work instead in terms of the consumption and behavioral patterns of groups of people that have coherent behaviors. And that really is saying the classical school was right to talk about capitalists and workers and bankers and landlords, because there's no point lumping me and you with Bill Gates, okay, mm. in terms of our consumption patterns. But whack Bill Gates and Elon Musk together, and you and me together, and you get a certain level of realism out of that. Social classes should be part of our analysis, and again, that's not part of either Austrian or or neoclassical thinking. The Austrians, I think, again, are more likely to be able to con- to uh, cope with talking in terms of different social groups. Okay, yeah, but you mentioned Cap M
0: and Pharma and stuff. So I think this is probably another area where your perspective would line up well with a lot of the Austrian types. I had an article at Mises.org once called Bursting Fama's Bubble. And <laughs> it was because he had this interview that just made my jaw drop Yeah. about how someone was asking about the housing bubble. So this was like 2010 or something, maybe. It, it, it was yeah. definitely Obama was in office and it was post-2008 crisis and everyone's talking about the, the housing bubble that deflated And he was just saying, no, operationally, the word bubble means nothing to me. Markets are always efficient. Because if if we all knew the market, I know the argument, Steve, I'm doing it for the listeners. If we all knew housing was overvalued, then we would all sell. So therefore, at any given time, it can't be that it's common knowledge that an asset is overvalued. And it was like, okay, but I can think other people are wrong. (laughs) It was such an obvious flaw in his logic. And yet he's this super smart guy. And if you can't say that there was a housing bubble that collapsed, I don't know what to say, but that's just not a good framework, in my views. So, do you want to
1: respond to any of that? Yeah, story? I think that's very true. The whole, uh, this is the crazy thing, because one of the reasons that Austrian and neoclassical theory appeal to people is that we are treating you all as individuals. We re- recognize you have different tastes and different preferences, different income sources, and we don't treat you like a homogenous lot, like those Marxists do, those terrible Marxists do. But then you look what they do, with. they end up saying, oh, we assume you're all identical. And we assume the goods you're buying are identical as well. And we assume you have the same expectations about the future. Oh, and we also assume those expectations are correct, mm-hmm. which is what you'll find in Fama's 2000. And Fama and French together wrote the capital asset mark, the theory and evidence of the capital asset pricing mark, mark model. It's a title like that in 2004. And they both said the evidence is strongly against it. But they said, when looking back at Sharpe's original paper, which I think was in 64, Fama and French said that The model is based on the presumption that there is a a shared, well, the bubble is a bad word, but a shared space of expectations of share market valuations, expected returns and expected variances of those returns. And we all have exactly the same expectations. And we can all borrow at the same rate, infinite amount, the lend or send an infinite amount to get the capital asset market line. He said, and these expectations are the correct ones. So we have a model of the market, finance market, that you see we're all Nostradamus. And you think, what on earth are you doing fooling practical people yep. to believe this shit described the actual market? And, and that's what they've, that, what they've done. And to me, it's because once you get locked into a paradigm, and this is a human failing in general, and it doesn't just apply to economists, it's incredibly hard to admit there's something wrong with the paradigm. Yep. And they start confusing
0: the map for the territory. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know, Steve, if I said this when I was with you on your guys' show, but my favorite example of that is in the – do you know what I mean by market monetarist? Like they do NGDP talk? Yeah, they, I know that. Yeah, yeah, so this guy, Scott Sumner, who's like the godfather of that school of thought, on his blog, he would constantly say things like, oh, what happened in – Nine is that when workers were negotiating wage contracts, they expected NGDP growth to be such and such. And I said, Scott, the average worker doesn't know what NGDP is. Exactly. So no, they didn't have expectations about NGDP growth that the Fed is foiling. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like it doesn't mean his policy is right or wrong, but it was like your model from step one is wrecked.
1: You're presuming <laughs> the model, you're presuming the model is reality. And, and I've, I've had friends who were lectured by Dubrow. And let's say that he would say the economy is not my model of the economy. Right, is, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, the way they're taught. So yeah, the extent to which people confuse the map with the territory and the map can be wrong. And yet, and they can find that it's wrong. And then the reaction is, Oh dear, what have I abandoned? Reality or the map? And we clutch our maps. And this is the one reason I defend economists on this in very, not exactly a generous terms, but I know it's a, a human characteristic. Max Planck said exactly the same thing about when he tried to convince his Maxwellian physicist colleagues, about quantum mechanics. If you read his autobiography, he said that it's, I have never, he said, the greatest disappointments of life, I've never managed to convince a colleague to change their mind on an issue with a purely mathematical proof. Now, he was a guy who discovered you had to treat energies coming in quanta, mm-hmm. uh to avoid the black body uh, catastrophe where you got predictions of infinite levels of energy out of high-frequency radiation from a black body which, of course, didn't fit the data. you got like a pimple shape. And he then solved it, and it meant you had to think energy came in quanta, and none of them would change their minds. And when you look at the the way that Kuhn talks about how people form paradigms and where change comes from, he found the same thing when looking at astronomy with Copernicus versus Ptolemy and so on. People are wedded to their map, they're wedded to their view, more than the empirical data, which contradicts Popper's argument about how scientists behave. And I think the reason that economists get locked into it is because the crises that occur in economics are transitory. The Great Depression occurs and then we have the Second World War and then the post-war inflation and then the boom and et cetera, et cetera. So whatever's the major problem continues changing and you can't reproduce it. Whereas in science, you can. And what that meant was people who learned when Pank Planck had done his proof, then students would be subjected to lecturers Lecturing about the Maxwellian explanation for the black body radiation problem, blah, blah, blah. Put up with them. But they know their Nobel Prize is going to come out of solving that issue or extending what's being done. So ultimately, the old bloke has to retire or he dies, has to be replaced, a new graduate student takes over. Now we're getting the realistic paradigm. So there's generational change in physics and all sciences because experimental contradictions persist forever. But there are that doesn't apply in economics. So you continue getting a priesthood that continues finding people who zealots who love the arguments, who love the mathematics of, I call it mathematics, and you just don't get generational change.
0: Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast. Is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys' convictions, about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism. And, of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. Okay. So, yeah. And for people who don't know, I people have heard about paradigm shift and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so, yeah, Kuhn's was it Structure of Scientific Revolution? Is that the yeah. actual but, So, I would encourage people because I was in the boat too, where I knew about it and I thought I knew, but I had never actually sat down and read it until I was in my 20s, I think. Yeah. And I was amazed that most of the examples were from the hard sciences. That's I had right. assumed. And so that was interesting to show that, no, even in something where you think it's, quote, the scientific method, and it should all be objective and there should be no passion or egos involved. And no, like until people had a, a new framework, they would just let the crises build up in their existing one because what do you want us to do?
1: We, exactly. We don't, you know.
0: So can you maybe speak to what's your – theory? because I have my views, but I want to let you go first. It seems to me like in the social sciences, it happens where people get stuck in a cul-de-sac longer, like in psychology. Yeah. Like there's a lot of like economics, psychology, maybe if I knew sociology and stuff better, psychiatry. It seems oh, I like the classics. Like they made a lot of good insights, but then in the 20th century, they took a wrong turn into some nutty stuff, and I don't like what the discipline did from that point. And, but yet in physics, that doesn't happen. It's no, it's more of a the longer stretch. It's, there's definite improvements.
1: There, there, there is a. I think for the huge difference is. The absence of controlled experiments in the social sciences, mm. generally speaking, and the fact that in, in certainly in our discipline, as I said, the dilemmas are transitory. Nobody alive today experienced the Great Depression, pretty close. Yeah. Certainly nobody conscious that they were uh, living through it at the time is still alive and working. So we, we don't have that, like the black body radiation problem, the double slit experiment, Things like that, which are so definitive, and any up to a point, any student can reproduce that for themselves and say this theory doesn't fit the data. That's why you get generational change in sciences. And then also, and you can see this right happening. What's happening with astronomy right now, as the a James Webb Telescope is bringing back the empirical data that contradicts the, the fundamental theorems of uh, astronomy right now. Like they've found uh, galaxies 340 million years. Old, and compared to the Big Bang, which have got structures that weren't supposed to happen for a couple of billion years, mm-hmm. sort of elements and so on. So they're saying that's scary as hell because maybe our theory of cosmology needs to change. But there's a sense of excitement as well, because I think if you have this long tradition of having a theory, experimental extension of it for a while, which is mm-hmm. what Kuhn talked about in terms of normal science, then you get... The point where you start to get the paradigm doesn't explain various elements and you have breakdown. Then you get a sense of excitement. First of all, fear. But if it happens, continue each time and you each time we come up with a new explanation, it makes sense. So we go from Copernicus, we go from Ptolemy to Copernicus. We get then Newton. We then explain so much out of Newton. Then we get Maxwell. I've, I've seen people argue Maxwell's the greatest physicist of all time for the way he unified. Magnetism and electricity Mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, And then bam, we have, suddenly we get the black body radiation issue. We, the ether gets the Michelson-Morley experiment, destroys the idea of an ether. But ultimately, as much as they were traumatic experiences, science got to the other side of it. So there's, you'll find among scientists, and I certainly see this in reading some of the astronomy literature right now, people are scared, but excited. We've got to abandon this. But hey, maybe we'll be the person who does the next Copernicus, the next. Mm -hmm plank and so on in social sciences people hang on to their positions and economics in particular and i'll give one example that i know that's quite intriguing i did psychology for two years i wish i'd only done one year i broke out at the second year of the waste of time which i'd done more mathematics the reason being that it was the time when behaviorism was dominant mm-hmm. now behaviorism has disappeared from psychology and i had a, a good friend at, at the university of western sydney he was a professor of psychology there Bond, I think his name was, and asked him what happened to behaviorism, and he said we were doing experiments about behaviorism implied stimulus response. You have a you press the key on the piano, you hear the note coming back, and your response is to play the next note on the mm-hmm. piano. And they said when we measured the the speed at which signal was sent by nerves, that no longer made sense. The signal couldn't make it back fast enough for the composer or the even the performer to be doing what we what the Skinnerism type stimulus response stuff said they did. And my my personal reaction to that was having sat through two years of psychology lectures, one particular part of you were not allowed to have non-observable components in your theory. Mm-hmm. So if you had to explain how the mouse ran down the maze toward the cheese, you could not presume an internal mechanism in the mouse mm-hmm. leading to go forward. You'd have to say stimulus response, they go there. But then to explain why the mouse continued moving, I walked out of the lecture when this happened. You had to presume what they call an RGSG mechanism inside the brain, RGSG, RGSG, and, and the mouse would keep on moving. I thought, are you wankers? You to try to get past the idea that you can't have any non observable things mm-hmm. going up here. You've got to have a non observable going up here. Forget it. It's just the psychology, behaviorism, and skin has gone out the window completely, and experimental reasons are why. Now, again, those experiments can't be done in economics. So I think we're in a particularly big bind in economics in terms of getting out of any extreme paradigm. And I put neoclassical and Marxism as the two extremes of our discipline.
0: Okay, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Like I've often put it, I said, look, we're still arguing, like Paul Krugman and I would give vastly different explanations of what happened in the 30s. Yeah. I said, And partly the reason this dispute persists and we both don't think we're lying is that strictly speaking, we would need to go back to the exact conditions of 1928 and then run the timeline forward with tweaking government and Fed policy to see because there's so many things going on. Like, yeah, I can look at Canada in the 90s and we can look at this. But there's always 19 different things that are relevant, that are different. So it's not the same experiment over and over that you just tweak one thing to see what if they had run a balanced budget in 1930, what would have happened? We, we don't know. We can never know because that was a very unique historical event with 60 million different parameters in play. Whereas to say, let's look at Mercury's orbit, technically, yeah, it's not the same thing. But we, I guess we feel like in physics, a lot of times we can abstract away. And in a sense, it's a repeatable thing that we can then, you know. So I don't know if it's because nature has more like a more parsimonious set of attributes when you get down to. Anyway, you, you get the distinction I'm making. Yeah. There is a sense in which. If we're saying the 1930, 1930 was a unique event, technically Mercury going around the sun in 1930, that was a unique event too. But yet we feel like that's more of a repeatable thing that we can study.
1: And then we've got things like the Einstein's general relativity is confirmed by Eddington in 1928, I think it was. There was a precise degree of curvature that was supposed to see mm-hmm. from the, and that's what actually was seen and so on. Confirmation of theories is actually easier in science as well. I have my own explanation for the Great Depression, and that's Minsky's theory. And that comes back to the role of credit in the economy and credit and aggregate demand. And I can look at the data and I find exactly what I predicted. That's a great segue, because I have that on the list. Why don't you
0: say, if someone wants (coughs) to say, what the heck happened with the 20s and the 30s? What's going on there? How would you approach
1: that? Okay. The main thing is we had a private debt bubble and private debt, change in private debt, which I call credit, is a, is a significant part of aggregate demand and it's the only part of aggregate demand that can go negative. So we had a bubble in the 1920s, which began with a housing, a housing bubble, which I wasn't aware of. I must say, courtesy of the work by a guy called Richard Vague. And I highly recommend you having a, a read of his work. He's a banker who's gone to become a an academic looking at the role of credit in aggregate demand and in causing economic crisis over time. But if we had a housing bubble that started the 20s, we then had the, the stock market bubble. And people don't have an idea of how large the scale of this was or how fragile the system was. The annual increase in private debt during the 1920s was roughly 5% of GDP every year. That's roughly the average. You went from about 50% of GDP to 120% of GDP over the 10 years of the 1920s. That's why we had the roaring 20s. But a huge part of that was margin debt. Now, you might know that margin debt these days is about 25 to 3.5% of GDP. And if you take on a margin loan on the stock market, you put down 50%, you can buy 50% more. So if you put in, if you borrow $500,000 from your broker and you put in $500,000 of your own money, you can buy a million dollars' worth of shares, and then if shares goes up by 50%, you double your money. Now, that's the, Back in the 1920s, you could put down 10%, put down $100,000, borrow $900,000 on a margin loan, and if stock went up by 10%, you doubled your money. And margin debt went from... Th- I think 2% of GDP at the beginning of the 1920s to 9% by 1929. Now, when stock market fell by 10%, everybody, go to margin loan, was wiped out, in a closed Irving Fisher. That's what caused the, 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 the negative role of credit caused the, the slump. And if I look at the, the uh, 2007 crisis, which I called before it happened, the reason I called it was I looked at the level of private debt and said it's the private debt to GDP ratio is rising very rapidly. It can't continue rising forever. When it even slows down, we'll start to cause a crisis. And we'll most, we could get negative credit out of this as well, and that'll cause a slump. So if you look at the level of credit in America during the 2007 and 2006, it peaked at 15% of GDP. By 2010, it was minus 5% of GDP. And I've had to logically since then, well, that was my original argument. I had to prove how can credit be part of aggregate demand. And this comes to another issue and I want to talk about, which is the role of banks Mm -hmm. in creating money. And if you have the fictional world of loanable funds, which is, let's talk another one of Paul Krugman's obsessions, then in loanable funds, Murphy lends to Keene. Murphy can spend less, Keene can spend more. The change in debt doesn't contribute to aggregate demand. Only the interest does. But when banks create money, their assets go up, the the liabilities go up, the liabilities are money, we spend the money, and that change in debt becomes part of aggregate demand as well as aggregate income. So you can go from when you look back at 2006, 2007, there was a component of aggregate demand created by credit was equal to 15% of GDP, Mm -hmm. three years forward minus five, a 20% turnaround in aggregate demand. Now, when I look at the correlation between credit and unemployment, I get a correlation coefficient of about minus point nine. According to conventional economic theory, it should be zero, roughly zero. It is so strong, it is so overwhelming, and the same thing applies to the 1920s. But you're working with yearly data. Meaning,
0: in periods when credit ex- is expanding, unemployment's dropping. That's right. Yeah. And then vice versa, when credit is being constricted, the unemployment rate goes up. Yep. Okay. I know I have some Austrians. I don't know, Murph. You got this commie guy keen on. Let me say, folks. Mises' explanation of the business cycle—he called it credit expansion. Yep. That was the thing that set off the unsustainable boom, and so I'm sure, Steve, we differ in the particulars and probably the policy conclusions. But I just want to tell people, like, what you're talking about is very, at least, kissing cousin of Mises' theory of what causes the boom bust cycle.
1: Yeah, and that's that's where Austrians and mm-hmm. post Keynesian have some overlap. Like in that sense, Minsky being. The person who first had an explanation that made sense to me of the volatility and the burns and busts of capitalism. Because I've read, I've read people like Brown and Sweezy and so on. And they talked about capitalism having a tendency to depression and slumps. And I thought that just wasn't the world that I saw. It just didn't sound like what I knew from my own personal experience of capitalism. And Minsky came along and said the fundamental instability in capitalism is upwards. The tendency to turn doing well into a euphoric expectations and speculative boom is the fundamental instability of capitalism. And that Mm -hmm. made sense, but an essential part of it was the heterogeneity of money. Does the central bank, like the conventional
0: framework they use with the Phillips curve and things like that, is that just beside the point or are they actively causing the cycle or what role does
1: this? This is where you're going to have a bit of a clash with me, I'm sure, Bob, because I think what actually helped set up the uh, the crisis since the 1920s, and also the most recent one, was the government deciding to run a surplus. Okay. If, you take a, if you take a look at the level of government spending in the 1920s, it was consistently a surplus of one percent of GDP. And if you read Calvin Coolidge's 1928 State of the Nation speech, at the end, the, I think it was the end of the year, so it was pretty much November 1928. He's saying how the surplus is what caused the boom of the 1920s. Now, what the surplus is doing is taking 1% of GDP out of people's pockets every year. Because so you're earning a surplus, you're taxing the private sector more than you're spending on the private sector. So you're reducing the amount of money in circulation. Now, one thing that will encourage people to do is, well, the money effectively my my net equity is falling. And my bank account is going down. I'll go borrow money from the banks and go gamble on, on assets and make up the difference that way. So, I think part of the reason why people were so speculative during the 1920s and similarly during the 19, late 1990s and early 2000s was because the government was running a surplus. Okay. Yeah. This is great stuff.
0: And I definitely, I'm glad I had jotted down stuff and our conversations just naturally. Maybe it's like yeah. a Ouija, Ouija board and I'm subconsciously steering it. But because, yeah, I had Douglas Robert on the show a few episodes ago and we were, and we got into the sectoral balance stuff and he opened up a a dimension of it that I wasn't on my radar before saying that even if like, if the governments, the federal government central government is running a balanced budget and there's no net foreign exports or imports so that you're in balance, the domestic private sector is in balance with the rest of the world. Still, he said you could have just looking at the domestic private sector pockets of debt accumulating so that the rest of the private households have net assets growing mm-hmm. and it's unsustainable and so mm-hmm. that's why he was saying in the, the typical mmt framework said that's why it's better to have the government accumulating debt so that the whole domestic private sector can have increasing net financial
1: assets are, are you okay with everything i just said yeah, my perspective is slightly different on that front because okay. I've invented the software package called Minsky, mm-hmm. which we talked talked a bit about and when you're on my show. And Minsky is designed to do a double entry bookkeeping integrated balance sheet analysis of a financial system. It also does a dynamic modeling in general. But the the critical part of it is what I call godly tables after win godly. And they apply the rules of accounting that assets minus liabilities minus equity equals zero. For each and every transaction in terms of financial assets, it's different for non-financial assets, houses and shares and stuff like that. But definitely for financial assets, the sum of all financial assets is zero. If you lend me money, then you've got a positive, I've got a negative, add the two together, you get zero. That's a general rule that applied. So when I put uh, the the arguments of modern monetary theory into my godly tables. And I only did that very recently, by the way, after reading Stephanie Kelton's book. And I love your line about it, by the way, your opening line. I disagree, but I love the line. When I put that in there, she argued the budget deficit itself causes the fund that enable government bonds to be purchased and the deficit creates money. And before, because I specialize in the analysis of credit in my work, I hadn't actually looked at the government sector in great detail. So I saw that and I thought, what does it look like in Minsky? And what it turned out was that the government creates positive equity for the private sector by getting into identical negative equity for itself. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, how does this integrate with my view of the banking system? Because banks, by definition, must have positive equity. If you, if every bank except the central bank, if you have a bank and li- your your short term liabilities exceed your short term assets, you're bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And and this, this is so. If you had a pure credit system, no government. Or a government which is completely neutral, spending equal to taxation, which is pretty close to the situation of the 1800s. In that situation, because the banking sector must be in positive equity, the non-bank sector is in negative equity. Now, it's possible for a non-bank to function in negative equity because you've got to just service your debts. And if you have, if your money is turning over sufficiently, then you can pay the interest on your debts, even though your, your liabilities exceed your assets and you continue functioning. But nobody likes being in negative equity. Mm -hmm. So what we do as a result of that is we think, oh, how can I get in positive equity? And that's, I'll buy a financial asset, a non-financial asset. I'll buy a house. I'll buy shares. And I've then also shown in other work, which has got an empirical basis to it, but also mathematical logic, that what actually sets the price of non-financial assets is the rate of growth of debt private debt. We drive up the prices by borrowing money for it. So you get caught in a bubble leading to a Ponzi scheme and another crash and so on. So your easiest way of avoiding that is for the government to run a moderate deficit all the time because that, if you have a government running a deficit and the banking sector being in positive equity, the non-bank, non-government sector can also be in positive equity and therefore you get a more relaxed attitude towards speculation and gambling and you'll get a a more sensible economy, and that's a large part of my explanation of why the 50s and 60s will be called the golden age of capitalism, because the government is normally running a deficit. People didn't think they had to borrow money to gamble on financial and non-financial assets to get positive personal equity, and they could focus on doing what capitalism is best at, which is investment and developing new products and so on, and that was a, a golden age. And then when we fell for the idea about government running a surplus being a good idea or reducing government debt, we ended up in the speculative bubble we've been in for the last 30 years. Okay,
0: a lot there. Let me do my standard thing about the whole, like the government debt is the private sector's asset thing, just to get your, again, folks, we're not trying to change each other's minds here on the fly, but just let me get my issue across to you, Stephen, and have you respond. So here's. So it's a big picture if the government s- floats some bonds and gets people in the private sector to give them 100 billion dollars in order to acquire 100 billion dollars in market value of bonds right, or and then the government spends that money without any more t- any taxation or anything so that's fiscally the government just ran a 100 billion dollar deficit they borrowed money and then spent it government debt held
1: in the private sector just went up by 100 billion right? No. Why? Because when you take a look at the, again, double entry approach, and this is I said, I only did this very Mm -hmm. recently, but maybe two years ago after reading Stephanie's book for the first time. Because if you think about how banks create money by lending, they increase their liabilities, which are their deposits, and they also mark up their assets, which are loans at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the balancing asset for banks creating money is loans. Now, bank governments can't mark up Bank's books. They've got to put something in instead. When you look at when the banks runs, when the government runs a deficit, it spends more than it gets back in taxation. It adds money to people's deposit accounts. It also adds to the reserves of the banking sector. The reserves are created by the deficit. Now, if you go back to the pre global financial crisis period, when you didn't get any interest payments on reserves, then what that meant was the, gov- the banks had an asset would earn them no income. The government would then then issues bonds equivalent to the deficit plus interest payments on outstanding bonds. That is basically saying to the banking sector, would you like to swap these non-income earning, non-tradable assets we call reserves, for this income earning tradable asset we call bonds? Oh, yes, please. So fundamentally, the funds is not money. The funds that are used to buy the bonds are created by the deficit itself. Okay. Let's defer that. So I, I want to focus just on the
0: static first, because yeah, you're talking about the process. How would we find ourselves in a position where the private sector is holding a hundred billion dollars in treasuries, and like right now, the private sector is holding thirty-two trillion dollars in treasury securities. Let's assume it's almost yep. held by American households and the government. Oh, gee, we owe this money, and Republicans are freaking out, and oh my gosh, thirty-two trillion in debt. This is like a around the necks of every newborn and stuff. And then the Stephanie Kelton's perspective is okay, but all those households or mutual funds or whatever retirement, <clears throat> they're all holding treasuries as assets. Mm-hmm. And so let's not ignore that. And so it's like the private sector has 32 trillion in net assets. Yeah. Whereas if it were all done, like you're saying, like if a household could say, Oh, we saved some money and we bought some bonds from GE, but then your asset there is the offsetting liability by GE. So the private That's sector right. nets to zero. Whereas yeah. if the aggregate. Assets, financial assets, we have our debt instruments issued by the U.S. Treasury. We can draw mental lines around that. And so, it's, oh, that's why the private sector as a whole has this $32 trillion in net assets. Yeah. And the federal government has the Treasury has $32 trillion in liabilities. OK, so what my question then is, in what sense is it, do I feel good knowing, oh, we've got $32 trillion, that entity over there owes us. When I say, by the way, how are you going to pay us back? And they say, oh, we could tax it from you. We could print a bunch of money. It, it, it's, to me, I would rather some foreign people owe us the money. No, they have to go turn a profit to give it rather than I, – I, I think
1: this is where our confusion comes from. Because okay. I, again, I, I, I'll give a bit of background. I invented Minsky because I, I've been using dynamic modeling mm-hmm. right since I started economics but using packages like Mathematica and Mathcad and Vensim and so on. And in none of them could I model financial flows properly because what you've got is a set of – the way they work is you have a flow chart, a set of flow charts. Or if you're working in in Mathematica, as I was when I did my PhD, you've got to write differential equations. Mm -hmm. And you've got a differential equation for debt and a differential equation for deposits. And you might put one equation with the wrong – you're typing this stuff. You can make a mistake. So I invented the idea of double entry of tables, which I call godly tables. Mm-hmm. But at the time I I didn't understand double entry bookkeeping. Okay? So building Minsky initially we were able to have single entry tables. And I used to argue with people that, that repaying debt doesn't destroy money. I saw that Minsky claimed this and I saw that Graziani claimed it, and I thought, oh, that's once banks create money, they're not going to go destroying it. So if you look in debunking economics, the model that I used there was a bank lending out of a vault. And they, you don't burn the notes. Mm-hmm. And I built a, a reasonable model at the time. Anyway, ulti- ultimately, in the real world today, money is almost all bank deposit accounts. Mm-hmm. And if you pay down a debt, your debt, your bank deposit falls, which is destroying money, your debt falls. So I was wrong. And then I've made it that Minsky is strictly double entry only. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's my background. I felt awkward. I had to learn the hard way by building the software that enable me to model these things properly and it then became obvious that the government when I modeled in Minsky it forced me to find out that the government creates money by running up negative equity mm-hmm. okay the so banks create money by boosting their assets and liabilities identically and then that means for the households their assets and liabilities also rise identically mm-hmm. so if you have pure credit system then there's you start up at Aggregate equity is zero because banks must be in positive equity. The non-bankers in negative equity, and that then you know, I think sets up all sorts of dilemmas for how we behave in an economy. When the government comes along, the government boosts assets and liabilities to the banking sector equally. That also means that it, what it does at the central bank is an asset swap. When the government spends, the its account of the the treasury's account at the central bank goes down. The accounts of private banks go up go up. When you get to the Treasury level, the Treasury s- spends which reduces its asset, the only balancing item you it can go at its equity has got to fall as well. And If you look at the accounts, and then for the pri- private sector, it means they get money and they get assets, the assets of their deposit accounts go up. The only balancing item is their equity has to rise as well. So, government spending in excess of taxation creates positive equity for the private sector. And then when you look at what the bonds actually do in that whole situation, if the government didn't issue bonds, the impact of negative equity would be felt by the central bank. Because the central bank would have its, I've got to show a set of tables to point that out properly, but the central bank would be a negative equity, which it can do because it's a very special bank. But when the government sells bonds, it enables the central bank to be in either positive equity or zero. It gives, and it means that the negative equity is borne by the Treasury alone. I'm going to be very accounting in the way I'm trying to explain that, but to me what it means is a fiat money system only works if the government runs a deficit because if you have a fiat money system and we're in a mixed fiat credit system, if the government tries to run a surplus, it's destroying fiat money. And we're telling people we want you to grow and improve the economy and Come up with new ideas. By the way, we're destroying the mo- part of the money supply for you. Do you like that? And to me, look, just let's be realistic. We live in a mixed fiat credit system. Mm-hmm. If we have a government that tries to reduce its debt, it's destroying the fiat money. And that causes part of the craziness we see in how people behave in terms of financial bubbles.
0: Okay. Let me ask you this. In your framework then, so you think to avoid crises – Is this a true statement that this government, at least in a monetary sovereign, to use Kelton's language, Mm. that kind of a framework, does that government need to perpetually run budget deficits?
1: Yes, not not indefinitely and forever, but the, the, the rule should be a deficit and the deficit should be roughly the rate of growth of the economy divided by the velocity of money. Okay. Does that stabilize the debt to GDP ratio or is that number? Yeah, that going it can uh, You got to you got a, a stable debt to GDP ratio coming out of it. But when I, when I model this in, in, in Minsky, my Minsky mm-hmm. software, what I assume, and this is an assumption, is that the, first of all, the government runs a deficit, which is creating more money for the private sector and enabling GDP to grow. And the central bank, when in its open market operations, net buys the interest. The bonds that are issued equal to the interest. So what you get is constant equity for the central bank, rising equity for the private sector and both the private banks and the non-bank sector, and negative equity for the treasury, which if you look at the books, even if they recorded very badly, every, every economy and every government of the world is showing negative equity. There. And if there isn't, it's negative financial equity. And this is the important the word financial versus non-financial. It's become important. The net, the, 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 the net, Financial equity the American government is negative. The net non-financial equity, how many warships, nuclear power stations, regions of country, people, it's got enormous positive Mm -hmm. non-financial equity, and that's what gives the, the power of an economy. So we obsess about the financial equity situation without actually understanding it properly, and I find that more aggravating than people having political positions in many ways. If you understand it properly, it, the only way you're going to have fiat money is if the government has negative financial equity. But that doesn't mean it's a negative equity overall, and it doesn't have to repay it. If it tries to reduce that debt, it's destroying money. To me, you don't get a growing economy out of destroying its money base. Does that mean that is an implication of that you don't think it would be good if the
0: world all switched to like using Bitcoin as the… Money. Yeah, uh, Bitcoin.
1: Bitcoin's got all sorts of problems to it. I, I, I wish I'd bought it because I, I knew Max and Stacey. Max Herbert and Stacey. Max uh, Kaiser and Stacey Herbert very well, and they were trying to say you should buy some when it was ten bucks of Bitcoin, and I, I could have afforded to lose a thousand quid. I would have made a couple of million instead. But I didn't do it because they explained it to me, and I thought this is crazy because Bitcoin, for a start, only it re- re- you know, part of the security of the system is that it takes ten minutes to verify a calculation. And that 10 minutes burns a large amount of computer power, which burns a large amount of energy. And that's grown over time as the value, as the price of Bitcoin has risen. And I also think that bit, to me, the whole idea of trustless, the idea of a trustless money system, money has always been based on trust. Money has always had a credit foundation to it. If you go right back to the early origins of our monetary system, uh, what you can really see is when we went from small isolated tribes to agricultural cultures. We delegated the act of keeping in trying who owed what to whom in terms of the mutual obligations of a Cro-Magnon t- tribe. No, tribes, groups of 150 and tribes of about 10,000 was about the scale we used to operate at when we were still hunter-gatherers. And we'd all know within 150 who owed what, who, was, who, who, who had anybody shafted you, who'd been generous to you, who do I need to be generous back to. That was really the origins of money. Then when we have the, the modern societies, the priesthood took it over. And then the priesthood was, it, it, it's a much more confused picture than people think of it. And, and the idea that money should be a commodity or it should not be based on trust is an anathema to what money actually always was. And of course, the irony is now, and I, I, I made this comment to Bex and Stacey decades ago, a decade ago, that look, because it's so easy to create other cryptocurrencies, there's going to be thousands of these bloody things in the future, mm-hmm. and you're going to be stuck with not a question of who do you trust, but which one do you trust. Mm-hmm. And I now notice that Max and Stacey referred to everything other than Bitcoin as shitcoin. Yeah. You can't get away from trust. And the other thing, energy is a huge issue because the first things are going to be shut down when people finally realize how serious global warming is will be Bitcoin because that reduces the energy consumption of the planet by the rough equivalent of getting of eliminating Switzerland at the moment. So that's going to reduce energy consumption dramatically. And if it didn't, if you actually went one, which one do you trust? They they, they, they can't escape the issue of trust as part of money.
0: Okay, so I understand everything you're saying there, but also uh, the reason I was bringing it up was just that that by the very nature that it it maxes out at 21 million Bitcoin. And so you were saying in a fiat system, it's got to keep – the quantity of money needs to keep rising. And so I was saying with that, so that among the other issues you just brought up, but just the yeah. fact of having a, 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 something that was supposed to be the currency maxing out, you think that
1: would be an undesirable feature of the money? I'm Money has always been a system of command. It's command, whether it's privately owned or the government capacity to create money. And I think I mean, we may differ on this point as well, but I think we're in for the biggest crisis in the history of humanity with global global warming. And in that situation, the only way we're going to have a chance to fight it, if we'd done 50 years ago, if we hadn't denigrated the limits to growth, and William Nordhaus played a huge role in denigrating the limits to growth, if we had done something 50 years ago, we could have done it gradually with a private sector approach, a sort of a managed private sector approach. Instead, it's going to be worse than World War II. The Nazis are going to be in our land before we even realise we're at war with them the way we're going. And you're going to need dramatic command of resources to do anything successful. And that won't happen with Bitcoin. All those things are like going to fall apart. And particularly because they rely upon energy as part of their crypto security system. So I am
0: intimately familiar. I have a published article critiquing Nordhaus's DICE model. Hmm. I knew it very well, like the guts of that thing up, like through the 2007 version. I'll say something and then you can take the you know floor. Yeah. So from my perspective what was hilarious and I've written this stuff and I know we're coming at this Steve from different angles but uh. we both agree that this is like a farce. And so what I thought was hilarious was the same weekend that Nordhaus won the Nobel Prize for his work on the economics of climate change the UN came out with its special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming and blah blah blah. And there was the news coverage treated them as if they were symmetrical things. And I was, I was writing things, pointing out, under Norhouse's own model, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would be so bad, it would be better if the governments did nothing.
1: Yep. And so doesn't that seem weird? That <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. because yeah. well, this, is, this is one point where, given human civilization, we have to rely upon experts. I don't know how my computer functions I used to be able to put things together when I was a, a, a teenager, but late teenager, but forget it these days. So you have to rely on experts everywhere in a complex society. And people treat economists as experts, but they're not. I think there are a bunch of is think this applies in the discipline in general, a bunch of ideologues with the post uh, with the dominant ideology of the neoclassical. And their attitude is capitalism can cope with anything. So what Nordhaus did was basically assume that a roof will protect you from climate change. Yeah. Is that Literally. A roof? Like a roof over your head. What he he calls carefully controlled environments. Take a look at his 1991 paper, To Slow or Not To Slow, I think in the Economic Journal. And he actually said in that, that that there are some sectors which are going to be heavily exposed, others moderately and some negligibly. And he said, our, our, our calculation is that 87% of the economy will be negligibly affected by climate change because it takes place in carefully controlled environments. Now, He even included the mining sector in that. He had manufacturing, all of manufacturing, all of mining, wholesale and retail services, government and the finance sector as being unaffected. Now, the only thing I've got in common is to happen under a roof. Mm -hmm. It's that naive, that garbage. It's the worst work I've ever read in my entire history. I've never read anything as stupid as at kindergarten. And yet they gave him the Nobel Prize. And people say, well, he just must have done the science well. But economists don't understand the climate. They really don't. And that applies to Nicholas Stern as well. People keep saying the Stern is better than Nick. He's true. Stern is a bit better than Nordhaus. It would be hard to be any worse. But like even the Stern report, he used what's called the PAGE model put together by Chris Hope. And in that model, I think it's on page 126 of the report, I just sent it to a friend recently, there's a set of studies saying that the damages to GDP from the 7 7 degrees of warming will be about 10% of GDP fall, and that's growing GDP over time. Mm. They, they have no idea of what climate change actually means. And yet people think, oh, they're the experts and they've done this work on climate. They must have looked at what... And I thought this before I read and I didn't read him in detail till after he got the Nobel for it. I thought what he'd done is taken the damages that scientists estimated and applied a large discount rate to it. And instead I saw the discount rate was just in a mop-up his expected damages... Two or th- from two or three centuries further on than today, but he really thought they're going to be trivial damages uh, for the next 75 to 100 years, and that is categorically wrong. And because we've swallowed his nonsense and he's affected all government policy, finance sector, and so on, we're going to have catastrophic damages from climate change, and he and his cobalt of about 2,000 fellow travellers in the economic profession are largely responsible for us ignoring the biggest threat to the existence of human civilization ever okay let me so again it's very interesting like you and i both agree
0: on the inapplicability or irrelevance of nordhaus's model Mm. but yeah i'm coming from a very free market you can even say ideological perspective and be like are you kidding me we're going to push through a global carbon tax on the basis of this model and let me show you the problems with this model and whereas you're saying Mm. The action his model is recommending is way too inadequate. Yep. look at how how crude his damage functions are. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, and and I agree with you. See, when I got under the hood in red, there was a component of his model where, again, at least as of the two thousand and seven version, where he had a, a section for catastrophic damages, like tipping points and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The way he got the numbers for that was he just asked. He did a survey of like twenty five experts and said, put the probability of GDP damage being above 10% by 2100, and they all just gave them a number, and they averaged those numbers together.
1: It was that crude. It's (laughs) even worse than that. There were 19 of them, three scientists among 10 economists, only Nordhausen and I think it was Mendelssohn he had as so-called experts on climate change within economic. The other eight were people who weren't specialists at all, included Larry Summers, in that lot? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, Larry. I'm I think it's from the. they've got the 1994 paper, the Survey of Experts. They weren't experts. They were from of his friends. And you got three scientists. Pardon me, hitting the microphone there. Three scientists who agreed to be part of it. One of them refused to answer the question. They thought it was so stupid. And the other two, when he, when, the, the, when those scientists looked at this, you know, what's going to happen from three degrees of warming by 2090? I think it was six degrees by. Oh, sorry, yeah, 2090 by three degrees, 2150 for six, and then the other one was six degrees by 2090. And for the, the, the 2090 numbers, the three and six degrees, the scientists gave estimates 20 to 30 times as high as mm-hmm. the damages. He said, this is an interesting research topic, which he never did. He just stuck with a bloody economist. So he's created this deluded bunch of idiot savants around him who continue producing what look like elaborate pieces of econometric. They're based on assumptions that are completely orthogonal to what climate change actually means. And that's why we're seeing all these bizarre effects this this very year. The the weirdness of the climate, I think, is pretty obvious to most people, even if they deny that it matters. And I think for the next 10 or 20 years, it's going to be touch and go to whether human civilization survives. Uh, Okay. Unfortunately... We have to
0: stop respecting of your time. And I got to think too, that's a dramatic place to stop, but certainly maybe we'll come back. Is there something, Steve, with people who want to read more of where you're coming from on that you would recommend?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Uh, look, by the way, it's been great fun talking to uh-huh. you. It's, you've given me a hell of a, an open floor here. So I really appreciate that. I have two sites. I have a Substack page. So that's, uh-huh. I think it's profstevekeen.substack.com. And then there's Patreon, which is the other order goes www.patreon.com slash profstevekeen and like i like i appreciate support there i am crowdfunded but i do make all my posts open access you don't have to pay to, you can sign up without paying okay so, great yeah uh, and folks
0: will put go to folks go to BobMurphyShow dot com slash 294 and i'll give links in case you're in the car or something you want to go see what steve has done on that okay. oh lots more i'm sure we'll speak in the future again steve this is great stuff so thanks so much for your time
1: and thank you for the invitation bob much appreciated okay,
0: okay thank bye. you everyone for tuning in we'll see you next time
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.